The truth of the resurrection, I love this. The truth of the resurrection is still every bit as true today as it was last week. And honestly, we should be just as passionate about it today as we were last week. You know, you come to Resurrection Sunday, you come to the culmination kind of of, of the Christian calendar, so to speak, and, and we have big, strong Sunday, and we praise the Lord, and we say, the Lord is risen, Jesus is alive, over and over again, and we walk away, and we're so filled with contentment. But often what happens after Resurrection Sunday is that there's kind of an emotional let-up. There's kind of just a, a relaxing of our minds in terms of what we think. And whether it's the fact that last week was spring break or the fact that the weather's finally turning warmer or, or whatever, the focus has kind of changed a little bit. And we're not alone in that. We see in Scripture that the disciples really showed evidence in the days following the resurrection that, that they lost a little bit of steam. I've thought about this a lot this week. You would, you would think that they would have been so energized and so engaged and, and, and everything now made sense and all the things they remembered that Jesus had said and the Last Supper and Gethsemane and, and the cross, it all came together. And you would think at this point they would be so passionate and so uh, uh, just engaged in every sense of the word and, and that they would just be ready to tell everybody that they wouldn't have a moment of hesitation that they would just keep going out and saying, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. But it's interesting when we read the narrative of Scripture that initially after the resurrection, they hid. And then they were very uncertain. They weren't kind of sure what to make of it. And they, they continued to kind of question in the days after, is he really alive? Is this, is this real? And, and then they see Jesus, but after they see Jesus, they go right back to their old life. They hadn't really been fishing for a long time, and yet right after the resurrection, Jesus says, I'll meet you in Galilee, and they go back, and they don't prepare themselves. They go back, and they start fishing again. No matter how you slice it, really, the excitement and drive of hearing the news after the resurrection kind of, kind of doesn't fully continue in the weeks following it isn't really until Pentecost, it isn't until, until Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them that, that they get that fresh power and then they start to really say, all right, here's the assignment. And, and, and things change at that point. Now, what the disciples still didn't understand really until Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 was that his earthly ministry was ending but theirs was just beginning. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. That's the whole reason he came. He, he's, his earthly ministry is done. His, his ministry to people, he's not uh, going around Galilee now with multitudes. He appears to about 400 people after the resurrection. And then he goes back into heaven. Now the emphasis of ministry shifts away from him and to the disciples. But they kind of fall into the trap that's very subtle and it's kind of a subtle form of temptation, but it's very common. And that is uh, what we're going to see this morning in our text. And our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2. Because Paul here highlights how to overcome this kind of subtle drift, this subtle mindset that can take place of kind of a loss of energy and a loss of passion, especially sometimes if you've been saved for a long time or you've been serving in ministry for a long time and you just kind of 
kind of lose a little steam. Well, Paul talks about that uh, danger and how to deal with it and how to take a different approach that will serve as really a tremendous and powerful spiritual encouragement, not only to our souls, but, but to the souls of others and will influence other people. And it's really critical that we understand this mindset because we're not only susceptible to spiritual inconsistency, and, and every one of us is. I've been saved four decades. I still struggle at times with spiritual inconsistency. But, but we also develop, uh, if we drift into this, kind of self-centered tendencies that hinder the body of Christ far more than they help it. Now, we see some precedence of this, and we saw this a couple weeks ago with the crowd on Palm Sunday. Remember how one minute they're cheering and yelling and praising God and throwing their coats in the road and shouting, Hosanna, God save us now, and everything's praise, and, and it's just wonderful. And then we see a couple days later that, that uh, even the disciples are starting to kind of worry and fear, or they abandon, or, or there's just not much there. Now, if that happened with people that were seeing Jesus face to face, that happened to people that were walking with Jesus for three years every single day, then certainly we're susceptible to it. And it's interesting that as things got more difficult and as there was a need to stand for conviction, that there were three negative reactions that we especially see in the disciples and they're all really contained in the account of the garden. So let me give you these three because uh, I, want, I want really, if you're taking notes especially, I want you to write these words down. When we drift, these will not only be what happens, but they'll be warning signs to us. When we're struggling, when our focus is not on the Lord, when we're not completely given to the Lord, when we don't love the Lord the way that we should, these three things are going to, to come out of it. And these negative reactions took place with the disciples. The first one is complacency. They didn't hear Jesus' words, even as he sat breaking the Passover bread and pouring the Passover drink, and, and he's saying, this is my body, and this is my blood that's just given for you, and I'm going to die in and, and rise again in three days, and you need to understand this. And they're arguing who's the best and who's the greatest and, and wondering who's going to betray him. They're, they're completely unfocused. When they go to the garden, they don't pick up on his anguish. He says, don't fall asleep. Watch and pray. First thing we see uh, is that they're sleeping. So there was a complacency there because they didn't fully engage. They didn't fully understand. The second thing that will rise out of this is complaining. We notice in the text that they're kind of selfishly arguing with each other. And then they're kind of griping subtly that they're very tired. And, and Peter, when he's confronted, when he's following Christ in the courtyard, and somebody says, hey, weren't you, weren't you with him? He becomes very annoyed. And then another person says it, and he becomes very defensive. And then another person says it, and he actually curses the third time and becomes very hostile and says, I have nothing to do with him. So a complaining spirit, a, a disturbed spirit, kind of moved in as they didn't really understand and engage with the Lord. And then the third thing is cowardice. Cowardice. All but Peter ran away when Jesus was arrested. Peter's the only one to follow. We talk about him denying Christ, but at least he was there. 
But everybody ran away. Everybody uh, kind of went for their own uh, selves and their own self-protection as the stakes go up. And the problem wasn't really fear. The problem was a lack of courageous conviction. So we've got complacency, complaining, and cowardice. And I want you to really stop for a moment before we read the text and think about those three characteristics. When you look at those three words, complacency, complaining, and cowardice, think about how much impact and how much damage that they can have on the spiritual growth of others. How much damage they can have on other people's faith. How much impact they can have on the unity of the body of Christ. How much uh, prevention they can cause in terms of our witness for Christ. See, if people see spiritual complacency, if they don't see a passion and a fire and a fervor in us, then they're going to question the value of knowing Christ. They're going to question the value of living for Christ. And ultimately, if they don't see a passion and a fire that's consistent in us, if they don't see a love for the Lord that is constant, they're going to start to wonder about the sincerity of our love for Christ. The second problem is that if people see us complaining, they're going to wonder why we're not full of joy, because aren't Christians supposed to be full of joy? And and they're going to start to say, well, why in that person's life, because they say they're a Christian, they say they trust Jesus Christ, why is it that that self continues to have such a strong place in their life? And and non-believers will ask this. Why is it that that person who says they they trust Christ, why, why is it that they're still full of themselves? I thought the Bible said, and it is interesting how, how unbelievers can quote the Bible sometimes better than us or, or hold us to it better than we hold ourselves. I thought a Christian was supposed to deny their self daily. So what's with you? Because I still see a lot of self in you. The third problem is that if people see cowardice or they see a lack of strong conviction and defense of our faith, and, and with that is always a continued love of the world, they'll conclude that trusting Christ really must not change your life because it hasn't dramatically changed ours. Now those are frightening statements, and yet we see it happen with the disciples, we see it happen with the crowd, and we're basically warned here in Philippians chapter 2, and, and, and maybe warns too strong a word, we're taught here in chapter 2 that those three characteristics, those three inclinations that come out of not really loving the Lord are going to do a lot of damage. That's why there's, there's really no latitude for us to fall into those. And we have to guard our hearts against complacency and complaining and cowardice because they'll drag us away from the Lord. Jesus gave us very specific assignments when he left. He was very strong and very forthright about saying, Look, my ministry is done, your ministry is starting, and there are jobs for you to do. There are assignments for you to do. And these assignments will be hindered by complacency, complaining, and cowardice. So you have to make sure your heart's right. You have to make sure that you're dying to self daily. You have to make sure that you're a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You have to make sure that you're walking by the Spirit. You have to make sure that you are showing fruit out of your life. Because if those three things are present, they're going to hinder the work that I've given you. And you have the assignment. The Holy Spirit's going to give you power, 
but I'm leaving. I'm leaving. You're in charge. The Holy Spirit will help you. Now go. The one word Jesus says to us is not sit and soak. He says, go. So we have these assignments. He says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now go and make disciples of the nations. He says, you will be opposed. You will be criticized. You may even be persecuted because of me, because of your connection with me. But you have power from the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. Now you need to go. And he says, there are specific jobs. You're to be disciples, you're to be witnesses, and you're to be ambassadors. Now, all three of those are outwardly focused. All three of those are designed to have an impact that points people toward Christ and not toward ourselves. Now, again, that, that attitude is not natural to our humanity. But here's the powerful truth of trust in Jesus Christ. You and I, as believers are not controlled by our humanity anymore. Somebody say amen a little louder to that. Because that's an incredible truth. You and I, as believers, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, if Christ is your Savior, if Christ is your Lord, the reality is you and I are not controlled by our human nature anymore. We have been given a new nature and our minds have been transformed. And if we're really surrendered to Christ, sin doesn't have any authority over us anymore. Sin doesn't have any control over us anymore. It doesn't even have any power over us anymore. Our family has changed. Our future has changed. Our feelings have changed. Our faith has changed. The old is gone, which means that the temptation to be inclined to the old self, the temptation to be inclined to the old will, will still be strong, but our desire for that temptation has changed. And the closer we walk with Christ, the more in love we are with the Lord, the more yielded to the Spirit we are, the more that desire for the old will disappear. And God will put in its place a new mindset and a new attitude about people and about ministry. Now that's a long introduction, but that's what Paul talks about here in Philippians 2. And we want to read this morning about 12 verses, starting in verse 19. And let's see an example of what this looks like. Because this new attitude that God has given us, this new mindset, this new spirit that's, that's outwardly focused, looks like this. But I hope, verse 19, in the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. 
Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I be, may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, making his life to, be, making his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now remember, Paul is, is in jail. He's in Rome. We don't know if it's his first captivity or second captivity in Rome, but he is not able at this point to travel back to Philippi. He can't go to this church that he loves, that's full of exemplary believers, that, that kind of stands as the model of all the other churches in Asia Minor. He can't go back and see them, so he sends his ministry associates to go and teach and train and encourage the church. And there are two men here in the text that he refers to, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Timothy and Epaphroditus were exemplary because of their attitude. They were humble, they were servants, they were genuine, there was no pretense, there was no arrogance, uh, they weren't in it for themselves, they weren't trying to usurp Paul in any way, uh, they were just about serving. They had a genuine love and a genuine care for their fellow believers and for the work of ministry. And that fits so well compared to some other texts that we see that Paul writes that fits so well with the first part of chapter 2 that we studied a couple weeks ago where Paul points to Christ and he said, if you want to really know how to live, look at the example of Christ and let this attitude that was in Christ be in you. Now we know about Christ that when he came to the cross that he was humble, that he laid aside his rights. The, the text says that he emptied himself to become a bondservant. We've talked about the concept of a bondservant many, many times, that it's a voluntarily, voluntary submission. So, so Jesus, the Son of God, who had every right to do whatever he wanted, empties himself. How we understand that theologically, we won't fully know till we get to heaven. But, but he empties himself, he takes the form of a servant, he humbles himself, and he goes to the cross as a bondservant. And Paul says to us now, not just the Philippians, he says to us, have the same attitude. The attitude that was in Christ should be the attitude that's in us. And if you want to see an example of it, Philippi, look at my fellow servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Because Timothy and Epaphroditus are distinguished by that attitude. Now let's take just a couple minutes and look at each of them, okay? There was no one else who had a kindred spirit, Paul says here uh, in verse, oh, I hope I can find it, in verse 20. He says, there's nobody else that has the same spirit that, that I have. In other words, there's nobody I connect with more and, and feel strongly about that knows my heart than Timothy. Now that's a really amazing sentence because Paul knew a lot of people and served with a lot of people. And Paul had been burned a lot. He had been burned by Demas who loved this present world. He had been burned by Diotrephes, who cared more about prominence than about anything else. He had been burned by Alexander the coppersmith, who he says had done me much harm. He was even burned by John Mark, who was a protege and, and kind of somebody he was training and decided, you know what, the work's too hard. I'm going to go back home for a while. So all around Paul, there were people that had let him down. He even says later on in another text, I'm here in jail and nobody will visit me. Nobody cares enough to come see me. So Timothy, bring me a, a coat 
because I'm cold, like it's kind of a little cold here this morning. Bring me a coat and bring me the parchments. I want to read. I want to study. I'm lonely. Imagine the Apostle Paul who impacted more people uh, probably than any other person uh, other than Jesus Christ. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I'm lonely. Where have all my friends gone? Where are all the people that walked with me and set up churches? Where are they? I'm all by myself. I'm rotting in this jail. I don't have anything to read. Timothy, come see me. Can you imagine such a thing? So Paul had been burned, but he says, Timothy, oh, Timothy, you're of kindred spirit. Would have been logical that Paul would have been a little hesitant to trust people. Would have been logical that, that, that he would have kind of felt like an outcast. Even the disciples initially didn't trust him as a true apostle. They kind of questioned and they were nervous. Like, is this guy going to kill us too? Maybe this is a trap. Maybe he's a spy. Maybe this salvation on the road to Damascus isn't really genuine. So you know what? Let's hold him at an arm's length. Paul probably never really felt like he fit in. And yet here he writes... In his wisdom, he writes, Timothy is the real deal. Listen, Philippi, Timothy is somebody that I trust because he's like-minded about the Lord and about the work. You know, it's so rare. It is so rare that we can fully trust somebody. We say we trust our family or our friends, but, but the truth is, and I don't mean to be negative here, forgive me for this, but the truth is, at the end of the day, most people are self-centered. And when push comes to shove, they will often let us down because they're interested in what they want. Timothy was not like that. He loved people. He was genuinely concerned for the Philippians, their personal lives and their spiritual growth. And you know, the Lord gave me, a, a, I, I believe, uh, I use that word hesitantly. I think I got a fresh insight on this uh, last night. This may be why Timothy was so discouraged in First and Second Timothy. Because he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. He sees opposition, which is normal in ministry. But, but the real thing that broke Timothy's heart about the church in Ephesus is that people were not walking with the Lord. And I want to tell you, there's nothing that should break our heart more than to see people who know the Lord that aren't walking with the Lord. Who love themselves more than they love the one who has saved them, as 2 Timothy 4 talks about. That really gets you down. Listen, there's a reason why 1,500 pastors are quitting every month. It's not because of music. It's not because of structure. It's not because the evangelism isn't as strong as it should be. If you read about pastors, and I do a lot, the reason most pastors are quitting is because they see people that should love the Lord that aren't. And what a tragedy. Paul talks about that here. And I believe that's why Timothy was so disheartened by the spiritual coldness in Ephesus, that he got to the place where he said, you know what, I can't do it anymore, Paul. I've got to quit. And between First and Second Timothy, he apparently writes a letter to Paul in jail and says, I'm done. I'm done. Ephesus is too hard. The influence of false idols, the goddess Diana had a beautiful temple in Ephesus and, and, and people in the church are opposing me and I'm looking around my culture and the culture is carnal and the people that should be loving the Lord don't love the Lord and, and Paul, I'm done. 
In fact, the Spirit of God writes about this in Revelation 2. He says the problem in Ephesus is that they had lost their first love. In other words, they knew better, but they had strayed spiritually and they had become unfaithful to Christ and they were lured by the lusts of the world and they became unwilling to be loyal to Christ. That's why Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, men will be lovers of self more than lovers of Christ. So Timothy was discouraged, but he looks at Ephesus, he looks at Philippi, and he says, oh, those people, they love the Lord. Wouldn't you want, listen, there's no greater description that could define Harbor Rock Tabernacle than the statement, those people love Christ. You want a tagline for our church? If we could stand at the end of the day and say, you know what? We may not do a lot of things perfectly. We may not be the biggest church in the world. But I'll tell you one thing. We love Jesus Christ. Oh, if we could say that, the impact that this church would have would be unbelievable. Loving Christ. Paul says, look at Timothy. Look back at the text for a moment. Verse 20. Timothy has a kindred spirit. If we know anything about Paul, we know that he loved Jesus Christ. So if he says about Timothy, Timothy's a kindred spirit, then we can conclude that Timothy loved Jesus Christ. And Paul says, what a contrast this is to verse 21, which is a very discouraging but but common trait. Not of the world, again, now look at verse 21. He's not talking about the world, he's talking about Christians. He says, the people that are around me, that have served me, I've got Timothy, and Timothy's a kindred spirit. Timothy loves the Lord. And I'll talk about Epaphroditus in a second. But but Timothy loves the Lord. But here's the problem, Philippi. I've been surrounded by people that seek after their own interests and not the interests of Christ. Now, he's not talking about non-believers. He's not saying, well, the world doesn't love Jesus Christ. He's talking about fellow servants. If he was talking about unbelievers, he wouldn't use the reference of seeking Christ because because people who don't know Christ are going to try to emulate them. So this is in some ways kind of a sober indictment of people who said they were disciples. And Paul looks at them and says, they haven't been faithful. They haven't had a kindred spirit. And that had to be so sobering to Paul. And it should be sobering to us. It's that warning to us how easily self creeps back in to our thoughts and our mind and our actions, which let me quote the verse again, which is why Christ says, die to self daily. Not weekly, not on Sundays, not monthly, not when we need a little revival in our heart and we decide to get serious about the Lord. We are supposed to die to self daily so that we can honor Christ and seek Christ and live for Christ and love Christ instead of living for ourselves. So when we look at verse 21 and we read what Paul says here, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That's a very serious statement to evaluate ourselves against. Not only because living for ourselves is a dishonor for Christ, but also because living for ourselves has a very significant impact on two areas of ministry. The first is in verse 20. If we seek after our own interests, then it causes us to be uncaring and insincere and not interested in the lives and welfare of other people 
And, and we won't be able to mask that. People will be able to see that. It will be obvious, and it will start to impact our relationships and impact the effectiveness of our ministry. So, so if we don't, if, if we're just about ourselves, there's no way ministry will be effective. The second problem is in verse 22, that is if we seek after our own interests, it will greatly hinder the utterance of the gospel. Now that's our primary job as believers. Our primary job as believers is not to, not to be more intelligent about the word. It's not to be, you know, have more, more times of community. Those things are all wonderful and all important. But Jesus' primary message was go. Go into the world. Go preach the gospel. Go make disciples. Go baptize. Everything outwardly centered. So if we're after our own interests... How can we possibly be agents of the gospel? How can we be sincere about advancing the gospel? Because we're going to become more smug, more arrogant, more self-sufficient. And that mindset will prevent us from spreading the word. Either because we don't care about people's eternal future, or because we're honestly just too busy to take the time to tell them. So self-interest, self-centeredness, living for self, we talk about it all the time, but that's because it's so dangerous. It hinders our love for people, and it hinders our love of the gospel. Paul says, look at Timothy. He's a kindred spirit. He's an example. He can't wait to see you guys again. He loves the gospel. He wants to come and minister to you. He wants to help you, because right now I can't get there. I'm hoping to, but right now I can't come. And then there's the second example, Epaphroditus. Look at him. Paul describes him as his brother, his fellow worker, and his fellow soldier. Now, each of those has meaning. Holy Spirit never wastes words. The Holy Spirit never uses extra stuff to just kind of fill in the text. Every definition, every word has meaning. So he says, Epaphroditus is my brother, he's my fellow worker, and he's my fellow soldier. Now, as his spiritual brother, there was also a kindred spirit here, a sense of family, because as believers, the Bible says, we're adopted into the family of God. We're adopted as children of God. And, and Paul and Epaphroditus loved that. They loved that honor. He and Timothy and Epaphroditus were all together. He's my brother. You know, we, we use that word sometimes with each other. Hey, brother, how are you doing? Hey, sister, how are you doing? But, but that's what it is. We're connected. We're intermeshed. We're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the family of Christ. So he says, Epaphroditus, he's my brother. He's also my fellow worker. We, here we get a sense of Epaphroditus' heart for ministry. His genuine desire to see people mature in their faith and grow and, and live for Christ. But then he adds a third term. He says he's also a fellow soldier. In other words, Epaphroditus is not going to back down when the work gets hard. He's not going to fall away when the work is challenging. And, and, and 2 Timothy describes, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that... that um, He's not enticed by the world. He's not distracted like 2 Timothy talks about. He, he's, not, he's not unfocused. He's committed 
to the point of his life. When a soldier goes into battle, and some of you are veterans, when you go into battle, you know that day my life might be over, but I'm committed to the cause. I'm defending the flag. I know who I'm serving. So you know what? As hard as this is going to be, I'm going to go. We saw a documentary a couple weeks ago about D-Day. Unbelievable what those men did. They said 80% of them, they expected 80% of them to die on the beach. Can you imagine looking around, four out of five are going to be dead in a couple minutes. And yet what did they do? They ran forward. Paul says, and we throw on the term way too casually in sports, well, this is a battle, this is a war. No, it's not. You're playing basketball for Pete's sake. A soldier, he says, spiritually, he's a fellow soldier. He's completely focused. He has the will of the Father in mind. He's committed to the task, even at the point of his life. So Epaphroditus, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker, and he's my fellow soldier. But I want you to notice, look back at the text, he was also a humble servant. He was a humble servant. He ministered to Paul. He's willing to take this letter to the church in Philippi, not just as a courier like, hey, Epaphrodites, can you take that letter? Okay, I guess. Well, you clearly can get out of here, so yeah, I'll take it. You know, kind of grumbling the whole way. I've got to go to Philippi, man. It's a long way. I've got to walk it by myself. How am I going to get there? I'm going to pay for this. got to get some food. All right, guys, I'm here. Here's the letter from Paul. You think that's why he delivered it? He couldn't wait to get back because he loved the people. And and he says, I'm so committed. You see in verses 26 and 27 that he had gotten very, very sick to the point that his life was at risk. And verse 30 says that the, the sickness was caused not by a flu, not not by just he was worn down. He was it was caused by a complete dedication to the work of ministry. He had been working so hard to assist Paul that he had either become sick from exhaustion and from long hours, or he had some way been persecuted for what he was doing. But either way, here's what happened. Epaphroditus got sick because he was working so hard in ministry. He got run down, he got worn down, and and it wasn't just a couple days on the couch. He almost died because of this. Now that's a different kind of dedication, isn't it? Imagine being so committed to the work of ministry, so sacrificial in terms of our lives and living for the Lord, and that sold out for Christ, and that sold out to let people know about Christ, and that sold out to disciple and minister to people, that you get to the place that your health is jeopardized, and even your life is at risk because you are so committed to furthering the gospel and ministering to people. That's hard to imagine in this day and age when the church has become far more of a consumer entity than a sacrificial one. The explosion of megachurches and larger churches, and there's nothing wrong with them, please hear my heart this morning, but the explosion of megachurches in the 80s created a culture where people used the church to be served instead of serving. That's not an unfair criticism. That's just a fact. I can give you article after article. And unfortunately, it has led people not only to stop serving, but also it has made us kind of spoiled. 
Now, as I wrote that in my notes, I thought, all right, Paul, you got to watch your heart here. Let's not be unfair. But, but tell me if this doesn't sound right. Tell me if you haven't heard this before. If the church doesn't meet at the right time or doesn't have enough services to accommodate my schedule, if the church doesn't have a stellar building with plenty of parking close to the door or offer enough electives or small groups or programs for my kids, if the church doesn't have multiple styles of music and I can't wear anything I want, and if they don't have multiple versions of the Bible and the verses aren't on the screen, and if I don't have enough power, then I'll go somewhere else. Anybody heard that before? What... What I'm saying is true, right? And I hate saying that, believe me, because it makes me sound like I'm critical and bitter, and I'm really not. It's just the mentality that has crept into the church. The church really, and I've prayed about this next sentence, the church really has become a mall. And it better not be a lesser mall like Regency. It better be Woodfield or Water Tower or Mayfair and we literally have to make sure that we're serving Starbucks and we're not serving Folgers because what mall serves Folgers? Every mall has a Starbucks. And literally, I'm not joking, churches are actually debating what kind of coffee they serve and promoting the type of coffee they serve more than they're promoting the Word of God because they're saying, well, that's what will get people in the door. I have to believe that Epaphroditus, if he stood and did an assessment of the American church today, that his mouth would just drop open. He wouldn't understand the mindset that's pervaded our thinking. Now let me clarify. It is not that we shouldn't offer choices. It is not that we shouldn't do things with absolute excellence. It is not that we shouldn't provide programs that meet the spiritual, personal, and relational needs of those that come. Every church should do that. Our church should do that. I wish we could do it more. This is by no means evil or detrimental uh, on their own. The, the essence of the point is we're focusing on that more than we're focusing on Christ. And there is no question that it has stripped us of a lot of our passion to serve like Epaphroditus had where he came to the point of risking his life just to advance Christ. How often is that the thought that drives our day? I get so frustrated. I've been in ministry almost 30 years I get frustrated, and I fall into it sometimes. I will confess that to you right now. I get frustrated when I read the articles written by pastors talking about everything but Christ. Do this, do this, design that, make sure you have this, make sure this is happening. Now, have, a, have this strategy post-Easter to kind of manipulate the people and make sure you do that. No, I'm sorry, I don't see that in my Bible. I don't see that in Epaphroditus. I don't see that in Timothy. What the thought should be as we wake up is how am I going to advance Christ today? What the thought should be that we wake up is how am I going to love and minister to people with the grace of God today? How am I going to have a heart for people when maybe my heart isn't inclined for people today and I'm feeling kind of selfish and grouchy and I don't want to help anybody. I just want to do my own thing. How do we break that? I don't know about you, but I need to beg the Lord for more of that attitude. 
I need to beg the Lord for more of that attitude. Lord, give me a greater heart for people. Give me a greater passion for you, whether they're, 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 they're black or white or rich or poor or Asian or Hispanic or healthy or sick. Give me a heart for people because the bottom line is spiritually anybody that doesn't know Christ is sick. So much of our effectiveness or lack of effectiveness in really impacting the culture spiritually and seeing genuine revival is we've got to have this attitude. And unfortunately, the enemy has been very effective in giving us so much information and so many options and so many interests and so many distractions that we can be inclined to seeking after our own interests rather than seeking after the work of Christ.